0: to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. He says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Okay, so first thing we got to understand, we got to notice here. There is one thing in this verse, this past tense. In fact, the whole passage, there's going to be one thing this past tense. Everything else is present. You believe, you love, it's, it's happening right now. And that one thing is your birth. Your new birth, if you're a Christian, being born again. That is the thing that happened in the past, and it precedes everything else he's going to talk about. It's just like your real life. Everything that's happened to you, something else had to happen first. You had to be born, right? And so that's what he's talking about here. And this birth, it does something to, to us. It changes everything. It changes our relationship to God. It changes our relationship to the world, to one another, and it marks us. And so what's following, you could almost see, is is like the birthmarks of a Christian. Once we become born again, here's what we look like. The first one is love. And you see this parallelism in verse 1. So he says, everyone who believes. And then the second part of the verse, it's everyone who loves the Father, who loves God. And so it's the same everyone. The same people who believe are the ones who love God. He's saying it's it's part and parcel, a six of one and half a dozen of the other. What it means to have faith and believe, it what it means is to love God. But then he says, and this one's a lot harder for me, he says to love God, to love the Father, is to love his children. Now, every once in a while, I love these. You get these uh, illustrations of the Bible that, y'all, you don't even have to be spiritual to understand. Everybody can understand this. It, the easiest way to get me to like you is to like my kids. And if you think my kids are awesome, I think you're awesome. You, you could literally steal all my money, run up, punch me in the face, and as you're running away, just go, your kids are great. And I'd be like, that's a great guy right there. I love that guy. Right? What, what John wants us to understand here is that every Christian is not just born to a father, they are born into a family. And you cannot love the father without also loving the family. Now let's do a little diagnosis of the world we live in. As we look around our our culture and read the news and see what all is going on, how are we doing at this? How are we doing at loving one another? Well, I would argue we're actually doing great. We're doing really, really, really good as long as you mean the ones that vote like I do and share my interests and look like me. I'm, I'm killing it with that group. But beyond that, guys, I got I to be honest. It, it's kind of a mixed bag after that sometimes, isn't it? And this is so important to understand what really binds Christians together. Here's why it's so important. Eventually, given enough time, you will disagree with everyone in this room about something. It's going to happen. It's, it's almost inevitable. And then what? Then what do you do? Well, usually what Christians tend to do is leave and separate. When, when those things we disagree about, they, they start to divide us. And so what John is saying here is there has, to be, there has to be a common love, a common identity greater that supersedes all these other things that we disagree about. But this week I read a lot of uh, fascinating studies. People were studying kind of our culture and society and faith and how these things work together. And it's unfortunate, but all the studies agree that Christians today are dividing over societal things more than we ever have before. We divide over race, we divide over where we live, you know, so you got the the rural churches, you got the city churches, the suburban churches, we divide over even subculture, so we got biker churches and cowboy churches, you got the high society church on this end of town, low society church on this end of town, we divide over economics, but increasingly there is one thing that we divide over more than anything else, and you probably know what it is before I even say it, politics. The church is dividing over politics more than ever before. So guess what? We are going to talk about politics a little bit. And if I make you angry, I would love to hear uh, all the things that I said wrong and all the ways I was wrong. Just email me at mark at and I will thoroughly read all of this. So I, I read a study of a researcher guy named Ryan Burge. He studies faith and politics and society, and he says politics today is the main reason people leave churches. That's why. That's the number one reason. If someone's going to leave a church, this is most likely why. Here's what he says from a study. He says, people leave houses of worship when they disagree with other members. Liberals leave churches that are too conservative. Conservatives leave churches that are too liberal. And their politics is the inspiration to why they leave. And so he want to know, why is this? So he starts doing more research, whatever researchers do. And here's what he found. This is why this is happening. He says, the answer is simple. It is simply that this group of voters today are members of a political party first, members of a race second, and evangelicals third. You know what he finds out when he studies Christians today? He's saying that for most Christians in America, they view our new birth as the third most important thing about us. That's dangerous. It's so dangerous. I read another article by a guy named David French. He's a Christian. He's a war veteran. He's a journalist. And he talks about this, not with research, but with personal testimony. And so for a long time, he was an evangelical Christian living in a blue state. And so here's how he describes that experience. He says, "We felt the sting of progressive intolerance, repeatedly exposed to the censorship and anger of the extreme left." But that's not what he says. the biggest problem was. He said the biggest problem was all the hurdles he had to go overcome just to be able to talk about Jesus. He says you have to fight through a thicket of presuppositions that Christianity somehow means adopting specific and despised Republican stances on gun rights, immigration, taxation, health care, or climate change to even begin to get to a true and real conversation about Jesus. He's saying, I couldn't even get to Jesus. I couldn't even get there. Then he moved to a red state, he moved to a small town, Tennessee. He says this, life in rural Tennessee was substantially different. We felt loved. We felt respected. Our friends and our neighbors appreciated our faith, our work, and our politics. We were home until we weren't. In 2015 and 16, my faith didn't change. My commitment to life and liberty didn't shift. He says all that changed was his agreement with the politics of most people in his community. So he goes on to say, outside of my relationship with my closest friends, I suddenly went from the in-group to the out-group. The backlash was so intense that I remember telling my wife it was easier to be a Republican Christian in Cambridge, Massachusetts than being an independent Christian in Columbia, Tennessee. In my entire life, I had not experienced direct and personal hatred and intolerance like I experienced from other Christians including Christians who'd known me for decades. It stung. It still stings. You know why I I think he says it stings? Because that's coming from the family. That's coming from the family that we should all belong to together. And he goes on to talk about that increasingly we think that we can kind of knit together our faith and all these other threads or all these other strands, whether it's politics, economics, shared interests, whatever. And we think we can kind of knit these together. He says that the, the deception is that a tightly knitting together religious faith and secular power can create, protect, and sustain a thriving community of believers. Men and women, it will not, it cannot. It's not true because worshiping together just based on the things, the external worldly things we agree with, listen, that is not a recipe for unity. That is a recipe for division. If we try to love one another based on any premise other than that we were born again into the same family of God, it will not unite us in love. It will divide us in disagreement because eventually you will disagree with everyone in this room about something. And if all that was holding us together was political agreement, listen, it's not going to last. It will not, cannot last because it was never meant to. You know what the truth is, what John, I think, is saying here? And I've experienced this. Maybe you have too. I have more in common with a Christian on the other side of the world in Siberia than someone in my own family who is not a believer. And if you've ever been on the mission field, you've experienced this, y'all. I remember being in the Caucasus Mountains on the border of Russia and Georgia, Some of y'all trying to figure out how Russia and Georgia can share a border. Look it up when you get home. Looking at guys who we could not speak one word to each other, did not share the same language. But you know what? The family resemblance was undeniable. I knew and they knew that we were brothers. There was no denying it. So if you claim to love God, you must love his children, all of them. Well, how do you know if you love God's children? What does that look like? What do you do? Well, we get a surprise here. It's it's not quite what you would expect. It's not how I would answer that question. You know, I would say, well, you do nice things for them. You don't do bad things. Maybe you have a warm feeling in your heart, but that's not what John says. Let's look at verse 2. Here's what John says. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. Here's how you know. We love God and obey his commandments. So husbands, you want to love your wife? Love God and keep his commandments. You want to love your children? Love God, keep his commandments. You want to love your neighbor, love God and keep his commandments. This brings us to the second birthmark of a Christian. Here's what we're going to see in our our big family Christmas card, obedience. Obedience. And the way he's framing it in verse 2, y'all, love and obedience are not two separate things. Okay, don't think of it as, you know, John getting out three separate ingredients, like you got the sugar and the flour and the eggs. No, no, he's showing us a baked cake. What happens when you put them all together and the cake comes out of the oven? That's what it looks like in our lives. In fact, he goes on in verse three, he says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Well, hold on. Can I be honest? That statement is burdensome to me. You're telling me not only do I have to do all the right things, i got to like it. Hold on. See, this, is, this gets me. I mean, John nails me here. It's because, y'all, I'm a natural-born Pharisee. I'm a rule follower. And I grew up kind of in a rule-based Christianity, like, like many of us. In fact, this week I got to thinking about, you know, what, what were some kind of the youth group rules? Like the youth group rules that you were supposed to follow to be a good Christian, uh, and <laughs> some of y'all may have grown up this way. At one point in my life, it was very controversial to drink an IBC root beer. Anybody else? Because, because they, they made those, it was made to look like a bottle of beer. And so if you were drinking an IBC, you really wanted to be drinking a beer. Now, this was news to me. I never had a beer. I, I thought I just loved root beer. I didn't know that what I really wanted was to drink a beer. I, need, I needed people to tell me that. So they told me that. Thank you. Y'all remember Big League Two, right? The devil's bubble gum. <laughs> and y'all, they were trying. I mean, they, they put it in the package just like chewing tobacco, and they made it look like, I mean, they were trying really hard, I know. But, you know, that, that's, that's the evil bubble gum. So even some bubble gum is off limits if, if you want to be a, a good Christian. And, you know, that, it's, the rules change, but for many of us, Oftentimes, Christianity is following this list of of do's and don'ts. And and the thing is, that can work great in the eyes of other people. I was a good kid because I didn't drink IBC or two Big League Chew. How easy is that? I can do that. This is where John nails me, though. Because he says, not only do I have to follow the rules, I have to like it. And men and women, liking it is the one thing you can't fake in church. It's got to be authentic. Now, understand me. He's not saying following God is easy. It is not easy. It caused Jesus to sweat drops of blood, okay? If it wasn't easy for Jesus, it's sure not going to be easy for me. So what's he talking about? Remember, he's, he's blending all of these together. And so he's talking about obedience in the context of love. And here's how we work. We, obedience always increases with intimacy and trust. We obey the people that we trust, I read an interview with a NASA astronaut, a guy named Charles, General Charles Duke. He walked on the moon during the Apollo 16 mission. And he was being interviewed about walking on the moon. He talked about how amazing it was. I said, I know, really the only bummer was it's really, it's pretty short. And I couldn't go very far. I had to stay real close. And then, then they called me back and I had to go in. And a reporter asked, you know, why? I mean, you're, you're on the moon. Nobody gets to go there. and You've done all this work. Why did not you just stay longer? Why did not you go out farther? Duke said he would have loved to, but NASA was telling me it's time to go home. And here's what he said, everything about being on the moon and getting back to earth safely depended on implicit and complete trust in and obedience to NASA. And sure enough, by the time he got back on, they had about 60 seconds of fuel left before they would not have been able to take off again. And so what he's saying is I I trusted my colleagues at NASA. And so when they told me to do something, I obeyed them. I knew getting home depended on me, trusting and obeying what they said. And this is why all throughout Scripture, y'all, even in the Old Testament, God's laws are always encased in, they come packaged in relationship. Think about the Ten Commandments. You know, We tend to think of just the first list of ten rules that we all got to follow. Y'all, they don't start off with rules. You know how it starts in Exodus? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I rescued you from your slavery. So here's who I am. Here's what I have done. And so now you are my children. And so now these 10 rules are in the context of that relationship. This is how we can live together. See, it's not the rules themselves that determine how burdensome obedience is. It's mainly the relationship. Isn't that how it works? I mean, think about uh, rules for a slave trying to obey its master. Of course those are burdensome. Think about uh, rules are burdensome to an employee who's trying to to follow an abusive taskmaster boss. But, y'all, we are not any of those. We are children of our Abba Father. And that relationship is what makes obedience not burdensome. So let me just say, hey, if you've been trying to follow the rules, trying to be good, trying to love people without a loving, trusting relationship in Jesus Christ, y'all, I'm sorry. You must be really tired, and you have been carrying a burden. Can I just tell you this morning, there's a better way. That's why Jesus could say, hey, when you come to me, my burden is light. That's what he says in Matthew, well, why? How can that be light? It's not because it's a different set of rules or something. He's saying it. He says it's because you get me first. Our relationship will then change how you view the rules. And so because of me, you understand that God is for you, not against you. You've been born to me, you are now my child, and that relationship transforms his law from burdensome to beautiful. Now you can say like Paul in Romans 12, that, man, God's will, it is good. It is pleasing. It is perfect because I trust the one and I love the one that it came from. So Christians, we we bear these birthmarks of love and obedience and they fit together. But also there's faith, faith. Verse four, he says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it? that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This word where he says faith, he says belief. It's this word, pastuo, it means belief. Uh, but unfortunately, we've kind of watered down the understanding of this word. And so when we think belief, we tend to think just kind of factual knowledge. I believe, you know, two plus two equals four. But that's, that's not really what he's talking about. He is talking about life-altering belief. It is not just believing that Jesus. It is believing in Jesus. Because the Bible says, even the demons believe that. Christians are one who believe in. And so you may have heard it uh, translated trust. I would say in trust. I go all in. I bet the farm that Jesus is who he says he is. And I've fully entrusted myself to that. I've gone all in. I like the way G. Campbell Morgan said it. He said, Pistuo means to believe, not merely as an intellectual conviction or a philosophical assertion, but by abandoning yourself to the great conception of truth, by risking your own soul upon it, your own fortune upon it, your very lifeblood in the business. That's pastuo, And it's such a powerful word, we know, because of what he says you get. He says, when you have this type of faith, you get victory. One way to translate that word would have been just put the Nike swoosh in our Bibles. That's where we get that word Nike from. It means victory. But y'all, it doesn't mean just kind of last second Hail Mary victory. It doesn't mean just squeaking by victory. It means overwhelming superiority victory, big victory, overwhelming success. That's what that word means. And so in the Greek times, the the goddess of victory was called Nike. It was that kind of otherworldly victory. Now, y'all, what's interesting to me is we're actually, in our culture, we very often, very commonly talk about victory in terms of our faith, don't we? But usually, I think we talk about it in terms of overcoming circumstances or getting material blessing. And so we'll talk about, you know, I really want God to give me victory over this depression, that I'm experiencing, or, or victory in this financial struggle, or victory in my marriage, or success in my career, or success in sports, and, and we're looking to God to give us all these things, but you know what? This is how, y'all, honestly, sometimes with God, I'm just like a teenager at Christmas. All I want is money, right? We can be that way, and we talk about victory and success in terms of God giving us those things, but you know, I got to thinking about the guy who's writing this verse, John. Think about his life. So when he writes this, his brother was the first Christian martyr. He's been martyred and dead. All the other disciples by now have been been murdered. They're all dead. And pretty soon he's going to be exiled for the rest of his life to the island of Patmos. So how can he be writing about victory? How can he be writing about success and overcoming the world? What's all this big talk, John? Look at your life, right? Well, it's because he's not talking about victory Over circumstances, he's talking about Nike, victory, in the midst of those circumstances. So what's the victory? Faith. He's saying if you have faith, you win. In fact, he he kind of rephrases it again as a rhetorical question. Who? Who can have this kind of victory except the one who has faith? Answer, nobody. Think about it this way. What could make my son or my daughter stop being my son or daughter? Nothing. Once you are born to me, you are mine. What could make you stop being a son or a daughter of God? Nothing. Once you are born to him, you are his child. Men and women, that is victory. That's why... Paul can say in Romans 8, he says, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or even the sword. The problem is many people, many of us define victory by getting things from God instead of getting God himself. We value the gift over the giver. And y'all, that is exactly like marrying someone just for their money. It's the same thing. You're, you're like that prodigal son who says, you know what, Dad? Uh, don't really care about a relationship with you. Just give me the money, and I'll be on my way. Give me the stuff. And let me just tell you this morning, if you are going down that road, please stop. It will end in disappointment. It will end in anger, because God never promises you material blessing. Never. Never. What God does promise is something so good that even in the face of the worst suffering this world can throw at you, you can say, it's worth it. And that something is his son. That something is relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is how John, with his brother and all of his friends dead, with the world and threats pressing down on him, can say, Nike, victory. I have overwhelming success in this world because I've become God's child. And that's untouchable. I want you to notice one more thing, though. Notice that this victory, he doesn't say, is your own moral goodness. He doesn't say, if you love, if you obey perfectly, then you'll win. That's not what he says. There is a very important question that each and every person here has to answer, and it's this. What do you do when your love, your obedience, and your faith fail? Because they will fail. Then what do you do? Well, to answer that, John kind of takes us into a courtroom, and he's going to bring forth some eyewitnesses, some eyewitness testimony to answer this question for us. So let's read verse 6 through the rest of the passage. He says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, the, that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What John's doing here is he's kind of referencing the Old Testament law. And so the Old Testament law said you could not bring a charge against someone unless you had at least two corroborating witnesses. And if you had two, you had a pretty good case. But now if you had three, the law said, it's a slam dunk case. You were going to win. And so he brings forth three eyewitnesses. but one more thing I want you to notice is these eyewitnesses they are not testifying about you. Their testimony is not concerning you. Their testimony is concerning Jesus. It's concerning him. So what do you do when your love, your obedience, and your faith fail? You listen to this testimony about Jesus. Here's the first witness. He says, uh, there's three, the spirit, the water, and the blood. The first is the water, this... uh, Represents Jesus' baptism when he was baptized and one of only three times in Scripture, God himself audibly spoke and he said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This act of baptism, it was an act of perfect obedience by Jesus Christ. So you notice he's not testifying about your obedience. He's testifying about Jesus' obedience. The second witness is the blood. It's a reference to the cross and the bloody death of Jesus Christ. John has already explained in chapter 2 that Jesus spilled his blood to be your propitiation. Jesus Christ, the righteous God, suffered in your place for your sins to make you right with God. So you could become his son or daughter. And then in chapter 3, John argues, if this isn't true, if Jesus Christ, God himself, didn't suffer and bleed and die for us, we don't even know what love is. We have no clue because he says, this is love. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ, God himself, laid down his life for us. So you know what this witness is testifying? Not about your love, about his love. And the third witness is the Holy Spirit. At Jesus' baptism, the the picture is the Holy Spirit descending like a dove at Jesus' baptism, uh, confirming, agreeing with the testimony of the Father that he was God's son. But there's something really interesting about the Spirit here that's different. So he says in verse 10, he says that whoever believes has this testimony, not out there, but in himself, in here. And see, the water and the blood, they are referring to objective historical fact. They happened once in history, and that is so important, but it's incomplete. It's not enough. If that's all we have, it's something that happened a long time ago that, and then they told somebody, you told somebody, you told somebody and we eventually heard about it. If that's all we have, then all, all we really have is like this game of spiritual telephone. You know this game of telephone, you played this, somebody whispers somebody, they whisper somebody else, they, you know, worked on the line. We played this game in, in our house last week. We were sitting around and uh, Melissa said, you know, hey, let's, let's all go around and, and say something we're thankful for. You know, that, that's a great idea. It started off so innocent, guys. And well, Caleb says, well, then let's, let's do it as a game with telephone. And we'll whisper it around the table. Great idea. What could go wrong? Let's do that. So Melissa starts, and she whispers to Hannah, and I, I don't remember exactly uh, what she whispered. Let's say it was family. Whisp- leans over to, to Hannah, and whispers family. So Hannah walks around the table and comes up to me and whispers up in my ear, family. And so Caleb's right next to me, so I lean over to Caleb, and I whisper unicorn farts. I'm not proud of it, but I did it. We did, and we did several rounds, and they all ended much the same way. But that's how it always ends, with telephone, right? Maybe not that deliberately, but where it ends, it's never where it started because it's just somebody telling somebody, tell somebody, tell somebody who, who tells somebody, right? Y'all, it is not enough to hear about, just hear about Jesus from other people. That's not enough. What what John is saying here is the Holy Spirit can whisper to you. The Holy Spirit can tell you directly. You can have that same testimony in yourself. It's this thing that happens, you know, as as you hear other people tear about their experience, or as you open God's word, or as you worship, whatever it is, and the Holy Spirit whispers to you, it's true, it's true. And now you're experiencing God's testimony yourself. You're not just hearing about it from other people. One of my favorite testimonies I've read lately is from a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, and she wrote out her testimony in Christianity Today. The byline kind of says it all. As a leftist, lesbian professor, I despise Christians. Then somehow I became one. Listen to how she describes the Holy Spirit at work testifying to her. I'll just read a brief paragraph. She said, I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. I love that phrase. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. She goes on, it overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately in the solace of the Holy Spirit. The testimony of the Holy Spirit is that thing inside you that is bigger than you. And when it testifies, you move from believing that to believing in. And so John closes this passage by saying, the result is life, new life. You are born again into the family of God. He says new life comes with having Jesus. Life, men and women, it's not a prize that we earn through our love, through our obedience, through our works. It is an undeserved gift from the love and obedience of Jesus Christ. That's life. So I wanna close Just with one quick question, have you received the gift of life from Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? Listen, if the Holy Spirit is testifying to you today, whispering to you directly, I want you to know you are not alone. Many of us here have heard and believed that same testimony. And if that is you, we would love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you. I have many elders. Any of our members would love to talk to you about that. And for those of us who have been born again, Here's my encouragement. Let us bear the birthmarks of Jesus as we walk out that door. Love, obedience, and faith. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.